Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. I'm your host, Eric Navaretti. Each episode, I sit down with the writers, producers, directors behind the modern era of horror and explore their inspirations, setbacks, and what it really takes to make your favorite films. For episode 7, we're finishing up our interview with writer, producer, actor, A.J. Bowen. If you're just jumping in, be sure to listen to the first part in episode 6, then come on back. We'll still be here. In addition to AJ's prolific work in horror, you can also find him appearing in a wide range of genre work, like the sci-fi time travel story, Synchronicity, and the crime thriller, The Frontier. We can look forward to his return to horror with next year's Apple Cart, reuniting AJ again with horror legend, Barbara Crampton. Also, as a warning to listeners, some of our discussion gets a bit more sexually explicit during the lightning round. If that's not your thing, consider this our disclaimer. Let's check out a bit from AJ's 2013 film, The Sacrament, and get back into it. You guys ready? Watch it. We've been to some of the most chaotic, war-torn places in the world, but never for something as bizarre as this. You guys built all this? Father had a vision, and we built heaven here on Earth. Who is Father? He's the guy that started all of this. Can we speak with him at some point? He agreed to sit for an interview tonight. It's been pretty amazing. Everyone we've talked to seems to feel that this is everything they ever wanted, and they all credit you for that. Oh, I don't deserve the credit. You come down here, and I'll give you a place to live. I'll give you a job. I'll give you a bed. These people are my family, my children. And when you write this up, just know that you're dealing with their lives. Sam, do not get involved in this! Please take my daughter. What? We can't let him go back to New York. Oh, this is the last sacrament. Hey! Hey! How many more people can fit in this thing? No, no, what is that? Take the camera. I want you to film this. It's important. It's funny. Take it. You're telling me that you're almost surprised that there was an audience there like waiting for this to happen. But I mean, just to circle back to earlier, you mentioned that you and Adam were interested in horror because nobody was making the sort of horror that you wanted to see. Yeah. When your next came out, um, I remember seeing the teasers for it probably six, seven months in advance. I marked a calendar because for me as like an audience goer, I feel the same way. There's not enough horror that I I think is trying to be different or maybe trying to have some sort of message to it like Sacrament does, some sort of subtext. How often do you see something like Father in the sacrament who is just gets under your skin? He's so unsettling. It's funny that you're saying that because now I'm going to like completely devolve into a different topic. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I'll try to make it way faster. I completely agree with you about that. And one of the things that that always drew me to horror at a young age, it starts off and it's visceral, right? You love being scared. You hate being scared, but you can't stop. And when you start making them, what I found that I really loved about horror is its ability to satirize what's going on in the world, to have a frank discussion as a metaphor Mm -hmm. without it being like an on the nose message movie. You can read really get into some subtext with it can really discuss what's going on in society or some issues that you might have with it in a non-judgmental way and without necessarily taking sides because i can't take a side about pro or anti-vice mm-hmm. these guys are putting themselves in harm's way and the stuff that they do is also entertainment and but it's also bringing attention to certain things that mm-hmm. aren't getting covered by mainstream media but now they're mainstream media it's one of those things where it's like i'd, I'd rather just do the thing and then not tell anyone what my opinion is on it because it doesn't it's irrelevant the work is my opinion and you know people can take whatever meaning they want or don't want out of it but to your point 
one of the things that I love about genre is typically the budgets are low and you have an opportunity for somebody to get in there and really give a creative viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm interested in. I want a strong viewpoint. I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to even like it, but I appreciate it when it's someone that's I know is giving me something out of their head. And I stopped making horror until this year. So like Sacrament was the last horror movie that I made. That was four years ago. I took four years off from any kind of horror movie. And the reason that I did was very specific. It was twofold. One, after Sacrament, I was like, I felt like this is probably the best that I can do. Like Signal, Horrible Way to Die, House of the Devil, Mm -hmm. and The Sacrament for me, those specific movies Mm -hmm. were my four favorite. And I was like, I'm not going to get any better than that. And I got to play a completely different type of character with this. So I'm kind of tapped out creatively. It's time to do other things. And the other thing was, is when you're fortunate enough to make these movies, you you go to a lot of festivals. Ty didn't want to travel out of the country for Sacrament. We'd kind of done the stateside run and um, he didn't want to go abroad again. And so as an actor, you don't normally get to do stuff like that unless it's on your own dime. Mm -hmm. So I went in his place to Sitges in Spain, which was wild speaking directly, like sitting directly beside Takashi Nikkei. You know, and like wow. having conversations with him with an interpreter for two days was, was mind blowing and becoming like being all alone in a foreign country and then hanging out and becoming friends with Fede Alvarez because, you know, mm-hmm. he knew everybody there. And so he'd get me out of my shell and get me to go to dinner with them and, and hang out. I noticed when I was there that I was starting to see something that wasn't my thing, a type of horror movie. I didn't know that what would end up happening was that that would become the driving force behind film festivals, at least in North America. The trend started a few years back. It's still that way now. There's no way for me to say it without sounding like a dickhead, but I'm kind of not interested in this current trend of karaoke horror. To me, that's what it is, where it's like, I do wonder sometimes, is there anything that's purely uh, innovative or original anymore? If you're not talking about technical filmmaking. Okay. You're talking about a story level. We're really talking about the same things. Person A wants person B, can't have them. You mm-hmm. know, like, you know, it's, it all boils down to the same Shakespearean stuff. Right. Um, more or less, like the subtext of every story is more or less the same thing about love, getting love, not having love, mm-hmm. you know, jealousy, all of the things that come from it. So everybody is influenced by cinema. And you can usually tell these influences. And it seemed to me like what was starting to happen was instead of there being influences that you could dissect after an original story or movie, it started to seem in the independent film fest world that it was more about like, do you guys see the movies that I've seen? Hmm. And that's what the movie was about. Almost like high-fiving each other. Yeah. And instead of being like, inspired by something to me i started seeing stuff that was like a lo-fi poorly executed version of a movie that already existed and that's when i started noticing that at these film festivals the movies that were getting into these film festivals the filmmakers were going to the festivals and they weren't watching movies they were getting shit-faced and partying mm-hmm. and they were instagramming it you know or tweeting about it they weren't watching any movies there they also didn't necessarily watch any movies period but they had watched some back in the day sure. and they were doing their copy of a copy of a copy of yeah i think that there are young filmmakers now who don't necessarily kind of sound like an old back in my day right. um who don't necessarily respect the craft they're not humble enough to know enough to know that they don't know enough and that Mm. each movie is an opportunity to learn Mm -hmm. and to grow. A filmmaker's fourth movie 
should be so much better than their first movie. Mm-hmm. It just it, it doesn't have to work. It could still be a failure in terms of story or something. But you should be able to tell this filmmaker is better, is three films better than they were. And I've seen a trend with filmmakers in the independent genre world that think they already have everything. And if there's criticism, again, to go back to this whole like insular world, they don't have to see anybody respond to their work in an honest fashion because it's somebody that they partied with at a festival. You know, or it's the people Instagramming pictures mm-hmm. of them at a festival. And if anyone challenges their work, then it's they're an asshole or they they don't get it. They just it. don't get it. They don't get it. And then I started noticing that all of these movies were the ones that were getting into festivals over other movies that have interesting conceits or mm-hmm. innovative ideas. And it's people that don't know the secret handshake or that don't know the right blogger. Mm-hmm. And that's unfair for me to say as somebody that's had a lot of movies at these things. But I kind of had to drop out of that world a little bit because I started getting so cynical about it. I've made a few movies like as a producer I could have very easily made the kind of movies that I know will get into these specific festivals. Sure. But I didn't want to because that's not why I went to school and that's not why I lived at poverty level for so many years because I was compelled to tell stories. Right. I wanted to tell the stories that I told and... 201, they were all roundly and soundly rejected. I say that because I want there to be some levity about if someone's listening to this to understand that, like, I could be completely full of shit about I could be completely wrong about mm-hmm. my particular viewpoint and I could be responding entirely to, you know, our movies getting rejected suddenly by some of these festivals. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed that challenging work doesn't really get in these days. It's more about, I'll get that reference. Mm-hmm. I know that movie. I, I've also seen Scanners. And that to me is not compelling storytelling. So that's why I kind of stayed away from genre for a while. Till I came across one that I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting and I haven't seen it before. Is that one that you were producing or one that you're acting in? One that I'm acting in. You've written something recently, right? That you're yeah, yeah. I'd like, finishing up on? Yeah, it's uh, it made the first round of festival rejections, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, but yeah, that, that one is... Uh, and again, to be fair to anyone who might take personally what I said, that movie exists called Night Sky. And that movie exists because I rewatched Starman. A couple years back and was okay. like, nobody's making Starman. I want to make like Starman, but this. Okay. So it's completely hypocritical of me to say what I said. Okay. But I would hope that when someone watches it, they don't go, oh, this is a retread. I would mm-hmm. hope that they would be able to see that it's not a high-fiving of like, look, we watched the same movies. And goddamn Jeff Nichols, that beautiful filmmaker, decided to make his Starman movie with <laughs> Michael Shannon while we were trying to get ours out. <laughs> like, Damn it. But if you have to get uh, eclipsed by somebody, uh, Michael Shannon and Jeff Nichols are certainly the people yeah, those are that good you guys. want to be eclipsed by. House of the Devil. I think the incredible thing about that movie, it feels like it was of an era, right? Yeah. But it's not winking its eye Yeah, it's at not you. showing an era. It's, it's like, not like playing for laughs. There's a fidelity to it. That yeah. impressed me. And I, I distinctly remember when I was watching that for the first time, I had a roommate uh, come in. And asked me what what year did this come out? I've never I've never seen this movie. I've never heard yeah. of it. And I was like, it actually came out earlier this year. Yeah. And they they couldn't believe it. And I think that that's a soft touch that I think is lost to an extent with with current filmmakers because they think that you can't reference an era without also making fun of it at the same time. Well, it's like without being self referential. I, th- I think yeah. that there's too much self awareness. It unintentionally can really easily go into self parody. Mm-hmm. Where, like, I saw, I heard this, there was this movie, I can't remember the name of it now. I blind bought it based on what somebody told me. And I put it on because it was supposed to be, like, an 80s movie. And I could tell that they thought that meant that if they had acid wash jeans that it was Mm -hmm. the 80s. Mm -hmm. Without having any concept as to, like, 
okay, well, what was the narrative story like back then? Mm-hmm. You know, like jump cuts and everything is just not how it was in, in 81. Mm-hmm. Be inspired by it. Don't, don't try to make like a bizarro version of it that you would have found in the 90s while trying to make an 80s movie. It just doesn't make sense. That's not what they looked like back then. I wouldn't disagree with, with what you were saying a minute ago about like the, the overall temperature of, of horror films right now. There's always been that sort of level. There's always like the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And then there are a few standouts. But what would you like to see changed? And is that going... I mean, are in, in you going to be the one stuff? to make it? Yeah. I, you know, I don't have any idea. What a, what a shitty answer to give you. I never know exactly what I want to see until I see it. That's why when I see it, I try as best I can to be of service to the filmmakers. One of my best friends and, and the godfather of my daughter is a guy named Eric Vespi, and he's one of the editors of Anna Cole News. He goes by Quint. We met at South by Southwest when The Signal was playing there. The reason I mention it is because what I want is how our friendship started after that movie. We stood outside the South Lamar Alamo Draft House at like three o'clock in the morning. And you know what we did? We just talked about movies. We talked about movies that we loved, why we loved them. It reminded me of being in junior high in my buddy's basement. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're eating frozen pizza and you watch Aliens and Predator. You pop them in the rewinder and you watch them again. And you yeah. just, you don't realize exactly what you're, that you're forming, that you're like unformed clay. At mm. that point, you don't realize what you're doing when you're doing that mm. uh, at that age, um, which is beautiful because when you get to be my age, you're just so self-aware of everything that you're doing. You're trying to get back to that, mm. to a state of like just pure inspiration. When you had sent me the email about, you know, like these are some questions that we may go over. Mm-hmm. The, the one that really got to me was how did you get started? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, to be honest, uh, my sisters were babysitting me one night and they put on happy birthday to me. Mm -hmm. 1981 when I was like four years old. Okay. scared the piss out of me. Someone's having a party for the top ten. Before they get to celebrate, six of them will die in the most bizarre ways you'll ever see. Because of the bizarre nature of this birthday party, pray you are not invited. That's how I got started. I mean, okay. I know that I know what you meant, right, right, but right. realistically, my journey towards trying to be a creative person started, and I think it does for everybody at a very young age, yeah. when cinema became my language for how I made friends, for how I communicated with people. When I talk about like shorthand with people, yeah, that's what I mean. Ty and I, the way we communicate on set, at least the way we did it first. There's a there's a moment in House of the Devil where I'm attacking Jocelyn in the cellar after she's gotten free and she gouges my eye out with her Mm. thumb and i was trying to figure out how to accomplish this given the like sort of claustrophobic space that we were in with the camera there i was like ty are you thinking johnny karate kid and he was like yeah i knew exactly what he was talking about Mm -hmm. so what that meant was when she gouges my eye i'm to fall on the ground the same way that william zabka did when he got the crane kick in the face right and that's what i did all we were having was an aesthetics conversation right right so the character intent was all still there and everything but i was like what do you want because i like technical filmmaking and i Mm -hmm. i don't view myself as just an act i've never viewed myself as just an actor i want to know what the like shot setup is and and i'm like okay well if you're here in this shot then i can totally fall on the ground and crawl like this you know Mm -hmm. just like zabka did and that'll give you that moment that you wanted those three beats that you needed and that's all i mean by shorthand in terms of like what i want to see or what i want to do when i saw the battery and i found it was a six thousand dollar movie i saw filmmaking in there Okay. And it was okay for people to like it or not like it. That's fine. It's not for everybody. A strong viewpoint means that you're 
automatically cutting out 50% of the, your potential audience, which is great. Sure. You're like, I don't care if I make something that five people like that it speaks to. It's just as good for me as if 5,000 people are into it. And of course, there are things that can trigger my sense of nostalgia where I'm incapable of criticism for it, mm-hmm. like Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, you know, they shot it in Georgia, in the town that I'm from. Wow. It was set at a time when I was those kids' age mm-hmm. in my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, and and it was so it was like the stories that we would tell each other at that age. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was just like, oh, well, this is my shit so hard, and yeah. get season two here as quickly as possible. And I'm talking to some filmmaker friends of mine who mm-hmm. who I really re- admire and respect, and they were I, we were talking about this whole karaoke horror thing, and they're like, that's all that is. Mm-hmm. I was like, Fuck you. But I get what they're saying mm-hmm. because there's there can be a point if we're looking at things critically where nostalgia eclipses story. Mm-hmm. And so things become about beats or references mm-hmm. instead of a story that is influenced by something. So I want to tell stories that are that it's okay to be influenced by, but I don't want them to be a, collage, the time when that a collage of references to things that I've seen so that people will think that I'm savvy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that holds no interest for me. These people would ask me or producers would ask me, what kind of movies do you want to make? And I didn't know another way to put it. So I just said 80s movies, because for me, that was really a genre that was back when there was magical realism. You know, I always use it as an example to the point where I, I don't think I've ever done a podcast where I haven't talked about Teen Wolf. Um, so mm-hmm. I might as well do it again here. When you think about that concept, <laughs> you just think about it conceptually. Mm-hmm. We've got this movie about this kid who's a nerd. He's on the basketball team. We're going to have Michael J. Fox play him, mm-hmm. who's like 5'4", which I've never seen anyone on a basketball team at that height. And so the thing is, is that he's going to turn into a werewolf, and he's going to get really good at sports. He's going to seem very attractive to the opposite sex and become mm-hmm. super popular. And like in my mind, that's how the pitch went. And, that, and then the producers and the director were like... Okay, well, let's try to make the best one of those that we can. There's an integrity behind it. And I'm not wearing the t-shirt from the movie for people to think I'm cool in a pop culture way. Like, I I think there's some beautiful storytelling going on in that movie, even as an adult. You know, Mm -hmm. like, as a kid, I loved it. And now as an adult, it's something I can't wait to show my daughter. Is a framed painting of him over her bed. You know, and I can't wait for her to... I can't wait to get to the age where I get to start really showing her some 80s cinema and, like, hoping beyond hope that it kind of informs her sensibilities if she Mm -hmm. wants to be a creative person. So I sort of dance in and out of horror. I didn't think I was ever going to make another one just because as a creator, I don't feel like I can write anything that's scary. I can act in a movie that's a scary movie and I love doing that. But creatively, I think I've done so many that as a writer or as a producer, my brain's going to go towards something I haven't offered, you know, Mm -hmm. out for consumption. For me, that's going to veer towards like comedy. You did a sci-fi recently. I do like that. And that's when I wrote, um, yeah, like sci-fi. So what I, I guess what I mean is like 80s movies. Oh. <laughs> 80s movies. It's like, okay, well, I've got this flavor movie. I've got this flavor movie. And you've got such a finite amount of time on Earth that it's like I want to be able to get as many flavors out there that represent my interest. Back in March, I kind of jumped back in. And I'm going to do another one with the same guy, with the same crew coming towards the end of the year. And both of them are wildly different and wildly different roles than mm-hmm. anything that I've done before. Okay. And so, and one of them's uh, the one that we have already done. You know, it's like Barbara's in it and mm-hmm. she's doing something I've never seen her do and I've seen everything she's ever done. And I'm super stoked about it. That one's Apple Cart and uh, Don Coscarelli, a close friend of mine. I love saying that. It sounds so fucking arrogant. <laughs> but as a kid, it's like, you know, the guy that made Beastmaster um, mm-hmm. and Phantasm. 
you mentioned Susan and yeah. you mentioned a few other people that you've worked with that you, you have a background in comedy. Yep. And I have personally noticed that some of the most surprising performances in horror actually come from comedians. Yeah. And my gut reaction would be that, especially with improv people, they're so good at reading a scene that they know how to take it somewhere maybe a little bit unexpected or a little bit quirky. Have you found that that helps you? Yeah, it, it, it can be a really good exercise. The best example that I can give is like Swanberg. When we were talking about how great he is in your next. Joe doesn't learn dialogue, okay. which was a really tricky thing mm-hmm. to learn to work with mm-hmm. on a horrible way to die, even though we only have one scene together, and then we go to your next. And so that sounds like criticism, but we're not on stage. This isn't a pre-existing thing. If the writer and the director and producers are good with it, then my job as an actor is to be there for the other actor. He has the ability to do a lot of improv. He's pretty much not going to say what you wrote. The other thing that I will say is that you can pour over any take of any movie that Joe's been in as an actor... And I'd be willing to bet that you will not find one that's remotely fake. Talking about, you know, terms like fidelity. I've never seen Joe put anything on screen that was bullshit. Always real. I've seen actors never drop a line who can't do one real thing on camera. How do you find that balance? Like, mm-hmm. where's, where's, the, where's the happy medium? I think improv just is going to happen naturally, especially when we're talking about digital filmmaking now, right? Mm-hmm. Because since we're not shooting on film, which I've done several movies on film, and that is two takes, maybe three if there's a problem with the gate. But when you're shooting digitally, the only thing you're limited by is like the 12-hour day when you start getting into overage for unions and overtime. You have X amount of time to make a movie. But in that amount of time, you can do an endless number of takes. So you reach a point when you're working on it where you start becoming incapable of being truthful. Or just the energy of where things are going. Someone throws something at you, you're going to kind of veer down a different path. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't in terms of the movie, in terms of moving it into a direction. But it always is good for the movie. It's always informative. So it just makes sense that when we're working on a movie that we need to be open as performers and as producers and as writers to that sort of alchemy that exists when people kind of like let go of their ego and and are there being purely creative together. Mm-hmm. So you still have a template and everyone needs to be on the same page of the book so that we can all you know speak the same language cinematically speaking. But I, f- I find that improv is a really useful tool mm-hmm. in getting to the truth of the scene, which ends up helping the subtext of the movie and then the greater story arc. I won't always engage in it, but if something's not working or if something feels like bullshit, one of the first things that we'll do is we'll start playing with it. It's easy as an actor to go, I have no control over content, okay. only my own part. So if a movie's shitty, hopefully I was the, someone will watch it and go, you're shitty, but that one guy wasn't that shitty. Mm-hmm. That was the ambition for a while. But now that I'm pushing 40, and I've made about 30 movies, I feel a greater sense of responsibility for the final product. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always crewed a movie. You're asking, like, what's it like to get behind the get behind the camera? I've right. always done that. You know, like on Signal, all of us were crewing the movie when we weren't shooting. On any yeah. indie movie that I've done where it's not a big budget, like Sacrament was for us, mm-hmm. I'm always crewing. And usually on my off days, I go PA. Because I love being on set and I love the energy. It feels like camp. It's my mm-hmm. dream. It's what I always wanted to do. And I didn't know that until I started making, actually making movies. I wanted to make them. And a lot of people want to make them. And then they go make one and they find out, I really just wanted to watch them. Mm-hmm. Or they wanted <laughs> to like be on the cover of a box. They wanted to be in a movie, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to make it. Okay. Um, which is completely fair. And there's only one way to find that out is to be lucky enough to make some. Mm-hmm. But I found out that for me, the worst day on a film set is better than the best day not on one. 
and that I love being in there. I love the energy of creating something with a group of people that's only going to exist in this window. And our photo album of that experience is a movie that hopefully somebody will see and get inspired by. Or if they're having a shitty day, then like for 90 minutes, they get to forget about their problems and just kind of go live in this make-believe world that we hopefully did a good job building. You know what that noise means. It's time for... The lightning round. There are no wrong answers. It's just got to be fast answers. It's like I've got Parkinson's and like getting too <laughs> juiced up right now. It's not the it's not the Americana. So I think I already know the answer to this favorite well, film. What is... changes? Well, do, you, do you mean favorite horror film or favorite film? Favorite film. It's tied between Teen Wolf, Third Man, and Plain Strange and Automobiles. Favorite Starfleet captain. Okay. What's the craziest thing you ever to do for the sake of a movie? Um, pull my dick out. Okay. So the other craziest thing is uh, to try to do really fast. Is Hatchet Two. I had just met Alexis, who played my love interest in the movie, and I had to dry hump her for 14 hours while <laughs> Kane Hodder stood behind me and make up growling. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> starts off with shame and embarrassment and then eventually things sort of click and slide into place and apologies to my wife but some sometimes physics takes over and then you have to apologize what would you title your memoir i meant well (laughs) what's the most memorable encounter you've ever had with a fan oh okay memorable encounter i had a guy get a hold of my phone number and i thought i was being prank phone called Hey, AJ, this is Richard. Thank you for your call. It was great hearing your voice. And I was like, who the fuck is this? Why is a number from Nevada calling? And he's like, call me back. And uh, it's like, who got my number? It's unlisted. I haven't had a landline in 15 years. And then he called back a few days later and uh, was telling me what I was doing to him, what he was doing to me while he was very clearly masturbating. Um, I know that it was real because like classic male... The second that he came, he was like, uh, and hung up the phone. So it's fun wow. to call the FBI and say, hey, there's this guy that told me he's coming to my house. Um, and he was beating off on the phone and hear them laugh at you and be like, well, you know, call us if he shows up beating off. But otherwise, he probably won't. It's a long drive from Nevada to Los Angeles. I don't know. But you know, to be fair, I don't know if that guy was a fan. He was a fan of what he was doing in that moment. <laughs> Living the dream. Oh my god. That was a fun one to tell my mom about. All right. I think that covers it. <laughs> AJ, thank you for being sorry, on this. Sorry, show. it was of absolutely zero insight to you guys. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks for um, having me. If we do it again, I promise I'll be more concise and actually answer your questions. Not a problem. You mentioned you're not really on social media anymore. Right. Are there places that people can go to, though, to find more about your work or more about what you're doing? For all of my uh, character deficiencies, I found that social media really wasn't good for me. I'll probably reactivate my Twitter account. Okay. Uh, Instagram's done forever for me, and I haven't been on Facebook in eight years. But uh, it's uh, whenever it gets reactivated, it'll be at, at AJ Bowen. And, um, and I'm pretty good about when it's on there. Uh, I'm pretty good about responding to people's questions, hopefully honestly and without being a total dick. Sounds good. That was the final part of our A.J. Bowen interview. Big thanks to A.J. for letting us pick his brain for so long about filmmaking. Next episode, At the Point of a Knife, is going international. We're thrilled to announce our first overseas guests. I'm speaking with David Cairns and Fiona Watson, the writers of the Scottish horror film Let Us Pray, starring Leon Cunningham. 
At the Point of a Knife was created and hosted by me, Eric Navaretti, and produced by Renee Amador. At the Point of a Knife is an Automaton Creative production. For more of our work, visit our new site, automatoncreative.com. Logo and title design by Jonathan B. Perez. For more of his work, check out jonathanbperez.com. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. And help more people find the show by leaving us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 